0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: China tries to bring peace to Myanmar, but are its reasons more selfish than altruistic? Argentina's new president faces his biggest hurdle. Australia's parliamentarians are misbehaving. And how much would you pay to go on a nine-month cruise around the world? Or would you have to be paid to make the voyage? I'm Vincent MacAvini. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to The Monocle Daily. Coming to you from Studio One here at Midori House in London, I'm Vincent McAvini. My guests Isabel Hilton and Simon Brooke will discuss the day's big stories. Stay tuned, all that and more to come up right here on The Monocle Daily. Well, this is the Monocle Daily, and I'm Vincent McAvinney. I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue and a visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute, and Simon Brook, journalist and communications consultant. Welcome to you both. Good to be here. To, are we still saying Happy New Year? Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely. Still saying like, not be too late, Happy New Year. How are the resolutions going?
2: Um, they're a work in progress, I would say. Work in progress. Simon? I haven't made any because there's there no again. point.
1: I'm not going to keep them anyway, so <laughs> why bother? Already abandoned. OK, got it. <laughs> well, first, we're going to kick things off uh, in Asia, where China has been convening peace talks in recent weeks between Myanmar's military hunter and the Three Brotherhood Alliance of Ethnic Rebels on its northern border. It's thought China's aims are twofold. First, to eliminate cyber fraud operations victimising Chinese citizens, and secondly, to stabilise trade across the China-Myanmar border. The armed conflict is estimated to be causing a daily loss in bilateral trade between the countries of around $10 million. Isabel, first, if I can ask you for background, how involved has China been with Myanmar over the years?
2: Oh, very involved. I mean, it's... um, The military-to-military relationship is pretty strong, uh, but China has always tried to maintain a a relationship with whoever uh, is running Myanmar, so that even when it was Aung San Suu Kyi, it was relatively cordial. And it's worth remembering that her father, who was an anti-colonialist, actually saw China as a friend when he was in the liberation struggle. So it's all a bit nuanced in Myanmar. But the other big thing to remember is that the... After the Civil War, when the Communists defeated the Nationalists, a a faction of the Nationalists fled to Myanmar, particularly to Shan State. So these borderlands have been badlands for a long time. They've been places where where people take refuge. They've been places where all kinds of crime can happen. They're pretty lawless. Mm. And this latest episode is, is just the most recent example of that
1: and these cyber attacks that i mentioned what exactly is happening to chinese citizens
2: well they, this is this is an example of, of of the kind of modernization of of this this region as it which used to the be in bedroom uh, badlands now that you can exactly do it from, not i mean it, it used to be all about hard drugs and it is still to some extent but it's also become about cyber crime so there are chinese this is an area that the myanmar military doesn't control uh, it has people there it had uh, you know it has border posts there but they were seem to have in pretty complicit in this. So a massive cyber scam uh, operation has been has been going on in which people are trafficked or, or, or lured or kidnapped. 120,000 Chinese citizens is the estimate into working for cyber crimes which then target again mostly Chinese citizens uh, for extortion and you know the usual cyber, cyber crime stuff. This has been playing very badly in Chinese social media and it's been worrying the Chinese government because clearly you know it, it looks bad if They can't protect their citizens. Now, they maintain and always have maintained relationships with a lot of the insurgent groups in this area. As part of hedging their bets, and when in November three of these groups launched a major military assault on the on the government's outposts in the area and and made a huge dent. I mean, they captured about fifty outposts and a couple of mm-hmm. important towns. The Chinese were not displeased because they stated as one of their objectives stamping out the cyber crime. So China again is is hedging its bets. This suggests that the, the military are incapable of defeating either the cyber criminals or the insurgents. And it is possible that, that that you know this this that the military are on a on a, a downhill slide in terms of their control of the country. So China is you know as China does you know just making sure that it ca- keeps its relationships close and waiting to see who wins.
1: Mm. And you sort of preempted my next question there. I mean, how sort of uh, their intentions behind these peace talks? Are, are they interested in bringing about long term peace in the country, or are they just simply trying to solve something? Solve something that's become a domestic issue for them now, but they don't really care uh, about sort of maintaining of human rights and democratic norms in the country or anything like that? They
2: certainly don't care about maintaining human rights and democratic norms, but they they probably do care. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that they would rather have a peaceful and stable Myanmar than one that is in a permanent state of war because a lot of trade does go through Myanmar. It's not so much the trade with Myanmar, which, in fact, the interruption hits Myanmar more than it does uh, China, but the trade through Myanmar is is important for China. And this is all part of its neighbourhood and Belt and Road and all of that. So Mm. Eventually, it would like to see a a stable government, but it doesn't really care what colour it is. Mm. Um, Simon,
1: world leaders and global institutions have a lot on their plate at the moment. Is there much interest in engaging with the situation in Myanmar?
3: Um, I think uh, certainly China is of more interest to to world, you know, other governments um, than Myanmar. Um, And I think uh, there will be, I suppose, uh, people looking at this and trying to sort of uh, interpret China's uh, interest in other countries. um, If you look at the way it, uh, the the relationship it has with Myanmar at the moment, I suppose one of the interesting things, as you were saying, Isabel, this massive uh, action against cyber fraud. And I mean, just at the end of last year, hundred thousand people, sorry, thirty one thousand telecom fraud suspects were um, uh, arrested by Chinese law enforcement officers. So I think there's a concern here about fraud, and I think that's what China is probably interested in and i think that's what other governments will be looking at as well obviously there's a, there's a sort of uh, there's a an issue around politics and ideology here but but really i think what we're seeing more with china's um international policy and and its foreign policy is more to do with sort of trade and sort of pragmatism isn't it really? and so I think um other governments will be looking at this and just sort of trying to interpret in that context what um china how china views other uh, other powers around the world mm. uh, and Isabel, where do you think China will go next with this? the
1: talks don't seem to have produced anything so far? is this a long term commitment from them
2: i I think China's dilemma is to what degree it supports the military, which, you know, its own military has done for some time. And the military is, is disappointing China right now. And to what degree it, it hands off on the military and, and allowing the conflict to play out. I, I think in terms of peace talks, China's record on peace talks is pretty nugatory, really. I mean, it it goes through the motions, but it hasn't really... I can't think of any big breakthrough successes. Well, not really. I mean, the one that was claimed was the negotiation between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but that had been pretty much set up Mm. before China, you know, China came in with the kind of closing closing moments, really. And I think that China is reluctant to take risks when it enters into situations like this. Um, So it it tends to offer rather bland... um, If friendly encouragement. But, you know, you have to be a little bit tougher to get results on that kind of thing. And meanwhile, it has pretty much carte blanche to conduct its own cross-border law enforcement. It's done it before in Myanmar. It'll do it again. So it can look after its own interests while waiting for things to, to, to settle.
1: Well, turning now to South America, where newly elected Argentine President Javier Millay has suffered his first setback since coming to power late last year. Yesterday, a top court suspended a package of labor reforms he decreed last month, amid much criticism from rivals. The country's largest union has also heavily criticized the package, claiming it erodes basic worker protections, such as the right to strike and parental leave. Uh, Simon, he made a lot of promises during his campaign? Is he learning that it's one thing to make policy promises and another to actually deliver?
3: I think if you're coming into power in a country like Argentina, which in many ways is an economic basket case, um, you know, you think of inflation at 200%, 40% of the population living in uh, poverty. Uh, Argentina, for instance, is the IMF's biggest debtor with borrowings of some 46 billion um, in a way, I think what you need to do is, is stake out your territory and look for a big win. So you need to pick a fight uh, to show that you mean business both to your domestic audience, but also to international markets as well. And given, you know, uh, Argentine, Argentina's borrowings, those international markets are very important. So I think that's probably in political terms, if not economic terms, why he's decided to, to pick this fight. Um, they've the, the union has called for a general strike on the 24th of January, um, it's thought that uh, Mr Mele will uh, appeal uh, against the court's ruling. So you've got the next stages of this battle coming up. But certainly um, thinking back to uh, other examples as, uh, of where leaders have come in and tried to turn around an economy of a country that's really struggling as I say you, you want a big fight to, to really make it clear that you mean business and um, I imagine even though he does certainly sound impulsive I mean let's face it his election campaign last year was sort of slightly uh, slightly unusual wasn't it I think sort of wielding a chainsaw at one point things mm-hmm. like that no, um, <laughs> but I think uh, obviously he's decided that um, this is a, a fight he needs to, to pick and also I'm assuming that he's made some he, uh, political Judgment along with his advisors that it's one that he can win. Mm. And Isabel, he argues uh, that these reforms will deregulate the nation's
1: economy and that they're much needed. Uh, What do you think is going to happen here?
2: Well, he made two uh, dramatic promises in his election campaign. One was to abolish the Argentine peso and dollarize the economy, which most economists say, well, that's fine, but you need dollars to do that, and there aren't any. Mm. Um, and the other was to abolish the central bank, which was also part of that, um, as well as, you know, slashing uh, the Argentine state by about 40%. Now, it's we're about to enter the Argentine summer when the courts ought to be on holiday and parliament ought to be, uh, you know, also In at recess. the beach. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's launched this... Omnibus. This isn't just about the trade unions. There are more than six hundred articles in this package, um, which which proposes things like the privatisation of public companies, the elimination of primary elections, uh, five year prison sentences for people who organise protests, and uh, and the capacity for Millet to uh, declare a state of emergency until twenty twenty five, which would allow him to rule without uh, so like the intervention of parliament. Copy pasting the
1: dictator's playbook and. To get it all in one go
2: this is in the package so you know the unions of course are you know going to court over the union the trades union part of the labor part of it but there are a whole slew of other uh, lawsuits which are kind of grinding through uh, these courts are not going to get much of a summer holiday it seems to me uh, to, to challenge this and they kind of say with some legitimacy that were this bill to were this package to get through Congress Argentina would be a dictatorship for the for the foreseeable future
1: Mm. what do you think simon neighbors watching on international organizations like the imf will be thinking on the first few weeks of his uh, performance in office
3: well well, as i say i think they probably this is very much about an international audience and you know for uh, overseas sort of capital markets and things um and um I think that they will probably be watching with interest his economic policy. But the point is, you know, as you say, Isabel, you know, can you then get it through politically? Um, And it's difficult for other democratic free market countries to then support somebody who, you know, a government which is, in effect, a dictatorship. So I think they'll be looking at this um, with interest and also, I suppose, concerns about um, destabilising the country as well and whether that could have a knock-on effect on other South American states. Um, But it's also worth remembering as well that um, there will be a lot of expats as well who will be looking uh, at the state of Argentine politics and economics and wondering to what extent the country is worth returning to. Or to what extent they can pr- they sort of hold their heads up proud and, and say that they are proud Argentines?
1: Mm-hmm. Isabel, your
3: thoughts. What will neighbours be thinking
1: on this package?
2: Oh, they'll be very worried. Argentina is, you know despite being a basket case, it is still an important uh, economy in Latin America, and and it's part of Mercosur. It's got a history of of savage violence under the last dictatorship, and I think you know for its its um, close neighbors Chile and brazil that is that is that is a serious concern
1: mm. um And just slightly because we are, of course, sitting in London here, uh, what a lot of people will remember is the last time Argentina was in a major conflict. It was with the United Kingdom over the Falkland Islands, Las Malvinas. uh, And ever since, Argentine leaders have used that uh, as a sort of tactic to distract when they're in trouble, to raise their profile on the international stage. Do you think we might see that flare up again?
2: Well... I think rhetorically, perhaps. I mean, Malay has referred to it. But, you know, when Galtieri invaded the Falklands, it was guarded by something like 15 British soldiers. There is now a major military base there, inappropriately called Mount Pleasant. Um, And, and, you know, to invade the islands again, um, frankly, it it might play for about three days at home, but Argentina's bankrupt and the islands are well defended. I, I think it would be mad.
1: Simon, do you sort of agree with that analysis? <laughs> Britain doesn't have the navy it had no. back in the early 1980s as the only thing to
3: counter that. Well, it's interesting. If, if Mele is, is in sort of heading for trouble politically, then obviously our own prime minister is already in, in uh, difficulties uh, politically. If you look at the opinion polls and the fact that there will be an election this year, and he's obviously just hinted very strongly today that that could be in the autumn. So I don't know. In fact... Or for, as far as January 2025. It could be, but yeah. I think the implication is that it probably would be sort of sooner than that. But either way... I think it would be interesting what benefits that could there be for the British go- government, the Conservative Party currently in power, if there was some kind of uh, Argentine action against uh, the Falkland Islands, the Malwinas, and uh, you know whether uh, a British, if the Navy is there, but whether some British action to defend them could actually boost the uh, the government here in London.
1: I mean, we did see Boris Johnson attempt something like that on Brexit. He sent a gunboat to my home island of Jersey at one point to counter <laughs> the French. Uh, do you think he, the British he might be tempted to pull a thousand Thatcher in yeah, the I early 80s? it's
2: quite hard to envisage Rishi Sunak as Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Plus,
3: when you've done it once, you can't really do it again. It would yes. be such a bit of a you know a bit of a copy of that bit of a cheat, wouldn't it? Yeah, true.
1: And one of our aircraft carriers, I think, is still in repairs after they so used the to... wrong lube on the drive shaft. Oh, right. And it's and we'll the other sort of Probably in the South like yeah, China Sea. Exactly. Exactly. So don't
3: make promises that you can't keep in that way.
1: Alright, well, turning uh, to the other side of the world and uh, to Australia now, where federal MPs have been booted from Parliament's parliamentary question time for rowdy behaviour 118 times since Anthony Albanese's election as Prime Minister, according to new data. Predictably, 83% of those ejected were from opposition parties, with the main reason being interjecting and continuing to interject after being warned to stop. But more seriously, a promised powerful new body to combat more serious types of misconduct has been delayed until at least October. Isabel, I'll turn to you first. Uh, I would submit that for backbenchers in legislative bodies around the world these days, to get noticed, it isn't about your startling intellect and powers of argument in actual debates, but uh, poor performative behaviour to concoct a viral video that your staff can pump out to all outlets as soon as possible to get yourself booked on chat shows. Uh, do you think that might be what we're seeing here, and should we expect more of this? Sadly, I'm
2: shocked to hear you suggest that. But, you know, <laughs> could this be simply performative? I mean, of course, what. They- they say is well, they have to go on insisting because the government—they're trying to get the government to answer questions. The government isn't answering questions, so they have to kind of go on. So there is that kind of look at me—I'm taking on the government, and the government is is, is evading me. But there have been other episodes of really bad behaviour. There's a whole history of bad behaviour actually in the Australian uh, Parliament. I mean, remember particularly against women. I mean, the famous the,
1: Julia Gillard famous speech. Famous Julia
2: Gillard speech, and and I don't get the impression if you look at the number of women in the Parliament, it's very small. And I don't get the impression that that behaviour has improved very much. There was an episode the other day when, when a vote was called, the speaker locked the doors, and a whole series of of of, uh, of parliamentarians forced their way out of the doors against, you know, some poor uh, official who was trying to hold them closed, and and they had to come and back and apologise. So, you know, I think this this is just a deterioration of 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 conduct, which, mm. you know, it's not. Australia is not alone. We see it in politics in lots of places. But Australia has a kind of backstory, which I think probably makes it more dramatic.
1: Mm. And Simon, do you think what we're seeing is maybe a slight
3: reality TVisation of parliaments around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, parliaments reflect naturally something of the, the the sort of national temperament of the countries they represent, and we know that Australians can be a bit rumbustious, shall we say. So that is inevitable in many ways. Um, I think obviously the fact that over the last thirty years, um, parliamentary chambers have been broadcast around the world. And that's good because it opens it up, uh, opens up democracy. But of course, it, it turns, I think it turns politicians from being legislators into performers. And I think that can have a bad effect. I think, um, I mean, I do think what's interesting here is that the, the bone of contention, as you're saying as well, is the fact that uh, these MPs believe that government ministers were not answering the question. So in that sense, I'm completely behind them. I'm not very keen on their behaviour because I think it. we've already got this really sort of bad-tempered public discourse, haven't we? And this really doesn't help that at all. Um, it, it, I mean, it's interesting, yeah, here in the UK, I mean i was just thinking sort of that during a, a debate a few years ago on Brexit, a Labour MP, uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle, grabbed the ceremonial mace from the House of Commons from its holder and ran off with it. Um, so, I mean, that is bad behaviour, but oh, I can live with that, that's all right. I think bullying, um, I think... Um, uh, you know especially kind of sexual bullying as well I think that's what's really serious and that certainly uh, is something that needs to happen we've also had MPs in this country watching porn in the House of Commons I think that's always uh, <laughs> he was looking for he tractors, was looking for tractors and of course yes. there's still that debate what did he what did he type into Google <laughs> anyway I'm not, what a search history I know exactly absolutely so questions about that but um, yeah I think I think what's important here is that that uh, that the the, the the bad behaviour is tackled, but let's let's tackle the really serious bad behaviour, not the traditional name calling, but dishonesty, bullying, all those kind of serious crimes.
1: I want to turn to the serious stuff in a second, but Isabel, I'll get your take on this. Do you think uh, around the world we keep hearing all the sort of think pieces on what lies ahead in 2024, and uh, the recent papers have said it's the biggest year for democracy, it's, you know, over 2 billion people going to the polls across the US, the European Union, India, you know, the UK, it's it's a real testing year. Do you think generally, parliamentarians and democracies around the world might need to have a little think to themselves that the behaviour, particularly in this coming year, in places like, you know, upper and and lower houses, uh, is really crucial, because you've got the likes of China, of Russia, who very much want to point and show that you can have this system, which increasingly looks like a circus led by clowns and look at the, you know, look at the behaviour, they're like animals in these, in these assemblies, or you can have us, which is certainty and confidence and simplicity. Do you think that that is a real threat? And as we keep hearing about the sort of protection of elections, but do you think actually a part of it is the behaviour of
2: parliamentarians around the world? I absolutely do think so. I think, you know, as you say, China and Russia have been trying to discredit the whole process of democracy and the conduct is is a part of that um and and i think that it would be good if parliament if you we should also perhaps couple that with with two other things one that that Opinion polling suggests that people are really losing confidence in democracy. Again, partly a reflection of the behaviour in Parliament. In this country, if you ask people what they think of the behaviour in Parliament, they're absolutely fed up of it. And the second, just thing, the theme
1: of Sajidarma's speech indeed, today, who wants to be the next Prime Minister, saying he's worried that people are just, have just yeah, given up, yeah, are switching off. Yeah.
2: and 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 they will be encouraged to switch off by by malevolent actors and AI and misinformation and disinformation and all those things which we are going to see. Roll out this year in this massive election year, so I think we're you know we're at quite a vulnerable moment, and it would be helpful if parliamentarians could could think about the way they attack each other, perhaps do it a little more constructively and and, and uh, um, politely even um, and and remember that even if they are in opposition, that what they need is for the system to survive and faith public faith in the system to survive
1: mm-hmm. Better than your sort of viral TikTok moment of you storming Absolutely. the chamber with some That attack. has a price. Indeed. Yeah. But turning now to the more serious, I'd be touching it slightly. Um... There, the delayed body to combat severe types of misconduct that was promised by Anthony Albanese seems stuck. Uh, the actual Australian Parliament itself had a real problem in February and March 2021. A number of allegations involving rape and other sexual misconduct against women uh, involved in the Australian Parliament and federal politics were raised. There have been investigations into this, and Australia is certainly not alone in this. Similar things seen in the United States, here in the United Kingdom. I, in the start of my career, worked in Parliament. There was widespread bullying and misconduct, which really hasn't gone away of anything i think it's got worse um what do you think about these kind of bodies are they are they critical to these assemblies
3: um yeah i, I mean i have to say uh, I, I also started working as a research assistant to an mp and i look back now at the attitude to women and to all just to junior people in the bars and and uh, i mean really shocking so i think i mean the good news is that we've come on quite a bit further since since those days. I and mean, I was there before you were, uh, Vincent. But uh, we've come on quite a bit, which is good. I think, I mean, it's interesting because I, I teach political communications classes at Roehampton University. And, you know, one of the things we look at there is the kind of dirty tricks and things. And I'm realising now that when I'm going to be teaching it from now on, I'm going to have to focus more on the dirty tricks, neutralising attacks, all this kind of stuff, because it's increasingly um, important. And, you, you know, talking of AI, I think that is actually a bigger danger, a bigger threat than almost anything we've ever faced before. This year, as you say, more people will be going to the polls than any time in history. So it's such an important opportunity, a kind of shop window, if you like, for democracy. So I think um, dealing with the technology, the damage that technology can do, but also, um, as in the case of Australia, perhaps thinking about how do we introduce an, an independent a um, uh, transparent system that can look at MPs' behaviour, elected officials' behaviour, and make sure that um, where 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 it does go wrong, where it is not acceptable, that it is called out immediately. And yeah, I suppose that will give the opportunity of China. And I have to say, I'm sort of thinking on the one hand, you've got the the the. the uh, performance, rumbustious performance of Australian MPs. On the other hand, you've got the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party with these automatons clapping. I know I would rather have. I know what really is better for democracy. But um, yeah, I think to, to as I say, to, to make sure that the, the democratic world does show those authoritarians that actually, for all its faults, um, we can call out Uh, bad behaviour in in Western democracies and, uh, you know, and and produce a better system going forward.
1: Mm. Uh, And Isabel, just a final one on this. I mean, you meet politicians all around the world. I think in part of it is a structural problem. Uh, Most people who are elected representatives live two lives. They have a constituency where maybe their family is, and then they live alone in a capital city. And it's not like a staff provided by the parliament. They hire their own staff, some of them being a kind of direct line manager, HR for the first time. They people who are in these positions in these offices don't have anyone else to go to do you think this is a kind of structural problem that parliaments around the world need to slightly address and particularly when it comes to young women as well who are kind of most at sort of greater vulnerability
2: well i think as as you as you both pointed out from your personal experience, that that HR hasn't exactly been stellar in in the British Parliament, and I suspect that's true in most parliaments. And I think that most legislative assemblies are reluctant to impose upon themselves the kind of discipline that people would increasingly like mm. to see. Because you see, um, like the
1: Conservatives here, where their majority has been whittled down over four years, indeed, from, massively. Well, from
2: you know, people being expelled for various, yeah, uh, indeed. Um, but but they've also they've also been again, you know, reluctant to uh, introduce measures that would seriously address lying. They, you know, they argued that that, that a, a bill to criminalize lying in the House of, of, of Commons was somehow um, a, an attack on free speech, which is an extraordinary argument for a government to make. So I think that there is a, a there is a kind of structural problem in getting in getting legislative assemblies to uh, to recognize that the world has moved on they haven't kept up and that people are demanding better standards
1: mm. well we're going to turn now to our final topic and it's a slightly sunnier one if this is your thing people around the world are returning from festive vacations to the bleakness of january but one group of ambitious adventure seekers somewhat is just getting started royal caribbean has launched a 9 month long ultimate world cruise which will circumnavigate the globe if you're curious the cheapest room currently listed on the serenade of the seas vessel is uh, $59,999 per person that's for an inside stateroom and the most expensive option left a junior stateroom priced at $117,599 per person are either of you tempted by those offers
2: silence falls. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Obviously not. <laughs> no, I, I, the idea fills me with horror. I, I, I particularly dislike cruise ships because they are so ugly and vast and, you know, but the idea of being locked up for nine months with people that I haven't personally chosen uh, you know, being shipped around the world and, you know, a, a, allowed to get off and inspect things from to time, time to time absolutely fills me with horror. <laughs>
3: Simon. I can't think of anything worse. I mean, I think the funny thing about these cruise ships is you're out in the open sea, you know, the horizon going on as far as the eye can see, and yet you still feel claustrophobic because they are like tower blocks, aren't they? And the idea of claustrophobia and the prospect of food poisoning uh, and mass food poisoning and the idea of sitting next to people, as you say, you don't want to sit next to. I'm talking to some people that just the other day who'd been on a three week cruise, and they were told on the first night, these are the people you will be sitting with every night for dinner. The first night, they realised they had nothing in common. They didn't want to speak to these people. And the idea of repeating this excruciating experience 20 more times during this very expensive cruise just filled them with horror. So in the end, they all bought books and iPads and stuff and just watched... Red as they ate, which is the most horrible thing. What I would like to do, I think, is the idea that you is is travelling on a container ship, so you 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 know these big sort of ships which bring. I mean, quite dangerous now if you're in the Red Sea. Yeah, well, that would add to the thrill of it, wouldn't it? (laughs) Bring your own guns or whatever. But I have to say, to me, the idea of being on, and you can do it. Apparently, you might be on. Well, you can because there's a classic
1: study technique, which I think Pete Buttigieg the former U.S. presidential candidate who was now transport secretary, when he was at Oxford, there was an old tradition that for your final exams you could go on one of those ships because you'd be completely isolated cut off and you just focus on studying and I'm pretty sure he did it for sort of three weeks on a route and then you fly back to the UK it hasn't done him any
3: harm has it I no, it's true. Yeah. so I quite because that to me is a traditional voyage isn't it really mm-hmm. um so that that does appeal I might check that out
1: okay and looking at the cruising industry i mean the early experience of the pandemic how you know terrible that was for people you've talk, you know there're lots of instances where you kind of get these mass sickness events there are also environmental disasters these ships what do you think the appeal is why does it continue
2: i i, I don't know i i i suppose it's like any form of mass tourism that there is a very large market for people who don't want to or don't know how to organize individual travel it's it's all a bit it's all a bit of an effort and they sell the image of luxury i mean if you look at the marketing for these things it's all you know swimming pools on deck and all that mm. kind of thing um and you know lavish buffets and and i think people just um You know, there are people who do it repeatedly. I I was a lecturer once on a relatively short uh, cruise in Asia. And there were people on that ship who had, you know, that that's what they did every year. They they went on a cruise. It's not for me. Mm.
1: Well, you've firmly put yourself in the uh, land loving camp. But if you could go, Uh, away somewhere or on a voyage somewhere for nine months, where would you go, what would you do and how would you do it?
2: It's not that I'm completely land-loving. I mean, I did sail the Atlantic on a um, a small sailing boats there how were small? five of, well there were five of us okay so you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a solo voyage but mm-hmm. it was you know pretty hands-on so pretty how long did it take? uh it took uh, just over three weeks and we sailed from uh, the Canary Islands to Tobago landed in Tobago
1: calm seas throughout so any uh, it was
2: that's the way to do it if you do it in that direction you're mm-hmm. pretty much on a reach you know a lot of the time and it's much harder coming back uh, but it was it, but it was extraordinary experience in that unlike massive cruise ships I felt that I had a just a you know tiny sense of what it must have been like to set off across the seas. You know, for centuries people have done this, not knowing what they're going to encounter, or you know, in some cases where they were going to end up, and that was really valuable. And I would certainly do that again.
1: And as an academic with a keen interest in history, did it shape your view at all? Of, of, yes, absolutely,
2: yeah. because it fit. It fits in a part of the globe. It's a bit like um, overland journeys as opposed to flying. So I, I did once take a train. from from Hong Kong back to London through outer Mongolia and Siberia and so on. And that also gives you a sense of geography as history, if you like, you Mm -hmm. know, what people had to do to move around, what what their kind of sense of their immediate geography would have been. And when you add the sea into that, which most of us don't because we don't think about it, Mm -hmm. we live on land, um, it absolutely gives you a sense of history that is, I think, just, I mean, it's available, but it's not, embedded in your imagination in the same way as it is once you've done it. Hmm.
3: Simon? Yeah, I think it's interesting, as you say, Isabel, it's the idea of travelling somewhere, really travelling, which you would do by boat or by train, whereas a cruise you are literally just going round and round in circles. I know back um, in the summer we were in Palermo, Sicily, and it was really interesting there that 10 o'clock in the morning, places deserted, 11 o'clock, it's absolutely packed with tourists, Three o'clock. It's deserted again. We well, were thinking, why on earth is this? And then we sort of saw these huge, you know, uh, sort of floating blocks of flats uh, out in the bay, and we realised that's the tourists were pouring in, doing the Palermo thing in a, in a mass in a few hours, and then disappearing. I think if I did do a, a tour, uh, uh, a cruise, I think it would have to be cold. I'd want to go to Alaska or the, you know, the fields or something like that. Somewhere so, where it
1: really is the only option, essentially. It's absolute.
3: And then you're looking out uh, at those incre- that incredible scenery. And as you say, it's the only way you could really see that, couldn't you? Mm. So that would be the sort of excuse. The idea of sort of dipping into some tourist-infested Mediterranean hellhole. Floating Vegas. For six hours, <laughs> exactly, yeah. For six hours and then uh, losing all your money and then disappearing again. That certainly doesn't appeal to me at all. Well, Isabel
1: and Simon, thank you very much. Frequent listeners will know and expect our weekly feature, Letter from New York. Sadly, 2023 saw our final dispatch from Henry Reese Sheridan. Since October 2020, Henry has sent us over 140 wonderful letters and will still keep in touch with the occasional note from the Big Apple. However, the format lives on. To start the new year, here is the first from our new feature from around the world. We start with Lillian Fawcett and her letter from Singapore.
0: Spend any prolonged period of time in another city and you're bound to reflect on your own. Singaporeans have their own view on London too, and telling someone here that you've lived in the British capital often invites one of a number of responses. One of the most common, Oh, I can never live in the UK. The taxes are very high over there. They're not totally wrong. The tax burden in the UK is the highest it's been in decades. Meanwhile, Singapore is famous for its low tax rates. I won't bore you with the intricacies of my visa status, but as a temporary foreign worker, I have more or less no interaction with the Singaporean taxman. Instead, my own comparisons between this tropical city-state and the British capital revolve around much more, well, British concerns, namely public transport and the weather. As a bit of a history nerd, I love the oldness of London there's something undeniably romantic about the centuries of stories embedded in its red-brick townhouses, crumbling government buildings and fading pub facades. Less romantic are the decades of grime embedded in the London Underground tube seats. For some reason unknown, surely even to its designers, the seats are made from a thick rug-like fabric that clings onto all manner of dirt and, one assumes, bodily fluids. Take note, travellers, As a semi-season Londoner, my travel hack is just to avoid wearing skirts so they don't touch the back of your legs. Singapore's slick, air-conditioned MRT, on the other hand, has practical, wipe-clean plastic seats. Although I doubt there's even much need for cleaning. Food and drink are banned on the MRT, and it closes by 1am most nights, which limits the chances of the kind of drunken debauchery visible on any weekend or, in fact, weekday night in London. Britt's annoying public transport habits very often relate to alcohol, loud singing, chanting, eating hot food, etc. My own personal pet peeve, though, is when people keep pressing the button to signal they want the bus to stop. Fine, maybe the second person didn't hear the bell or see the lit up sign at the front of the bus that says bus stopping. But does it really need pressing a third, a fourth, or even a fifth time? Singaporeans have plenty of enraging public transport habits of their own. The first is their almost resolute refusal to allow passengers off the train before they get on. Some commuters are so giddy, so vibrating with anticipation to board the 5.43pm downtown line train to Bukit Panjang, they must push past an elderly lady who's trying to step out of the carriage. Another favourite is to play TikTok videos or have FaceTime calls on their phones out loud. Londoners can be guilty of this too and are usually met with a very British and very ineffectual tut. But over here, it's prolific. And most baffling of all is no one else seems to mind. When I look around the carriage for a bit of camaraderie via eye contact, a shared wry smile with a fellow passenger, there's not a battered eyelid in sight. It strikes me as unusual for a country where people don't shy away from being direct. I learnt this the hard way after an approximately 25-minute talk from my hairdresser about how the humid weather was clearly making my hair greasy. It was more than a little humiliating, but there was something oddly enjoyable about the exchange. It was the longest conversation I've had about the weather since I arrived. Even with my innate British ability to discuss the weather, there just isn't much weather to discuss in the tropics. Singaporean forecasts can usually be summarised in two questions. Is it humid? Definitely. Is it raining? Probably, but it won't be in an hour. My instinct to discuss the weather is therefore an itch that's remained unscratched for three months, a blighty-shaped hole in my conversational repertoire. So yes, having a hairdresser slag off my greasy locks for the better part of half an hour was a bit wounding, but in another way, pleasingly familiar. London has plenty to learn from Singapore. However jazzy the pattern on the tube seats, surely something wipeable is best for a transit system used by 5 million people a day. And I really could have done with a polite word from my hairdresser back home that I shouldn't get a fringe. For Monocle Radio in Singapore, I'm Lillian Fawcett.
1: Lillian Fawcett there and her letter from Singapore. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Simon Brook. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Naoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Vincent McEvinney here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye and thank you for listening.